We are uh, starting a new series tonight. I'm very excited to be teaching through the book of Philemon with you guys. So um, I promise it is in your Bible. It is one page. It is Paul's shortest letter in the New Testament. Um, and so it's right sandwiched between Titus and Hebrews. So you can turn your Bibles to Philemon. Uh, I was asked to let you know that we do have um, one other quick reminder, and that is the Silver Saints uh, Fellowship Breakfast that happens annual, uh, once a month is happening next Wednesday. So uh, mark your calendars for that, too, if you are a Silver Saint, and uh, you don't have to have gray hair to attend that, as, as I've heard. I haven't gone yet, but I've heard that you can go. So I might steal pancakes next week. I can't steal pancakes, though, because it's not in my diet right now, so... Yeah, we just, and we just talked about stealing on Sunday. Actually, so funny enough, on Sunday, we talked about not stealing, and then as the Lord would have it, I went to Home Depot, and if you've ever worked on a project um, like carpentry or anything like that, you know that you don't go to Home Depot once. Unless you're like really thorough and you make a list, that's not me. I'm usually like perusing every aisle, all 42 aisles or however many there are, and just deciding what I need right then and there, um, which usually the result ends up being that I'm back at Home Depot like four or five times that day um, to get different things. So it was like my third time back. I had forgotten some things and I bought, I actually just kind of didn't account for how much lumber I would actually need for the thing I was building. And um, so I'm, go, I'm back, I buy lumber, I get it loaded in my truck. It's getting kind of a hassle. It's getting late. I, I need to spray a stain. It's getting dark. It's going to get too cold for the stain to, stain to set. And I'm kind of trying to hurry. And I realize as I'm getting in my truck, that I have these two little hooks that I put in my jacket pocket because I had two by fours on my shoulder. And I, and I said to myself, they're like $2 each. Do I have to go back? Do I have to go back? And then I said, I have to go back. I have to go back. So I had to walk all the way back inside. And uh, then it was an opportunity. So I looked at the cashier and I said, you know, this is crazy. Uh, I, I just, uh, my church is going through the Ten Commandments. Our pastor just taught on do not steal on Sunday. And here I am on Tuesday and I'm, I'm trying to steal stuff. You know, and I said, so God gave me the opportunity, and I came back, and she, she didn't seem super interested, but uh, I, I tried. So, you know, you win some, you lose some. I figured, I planted a seed, maybe she'll think about it later. But anyway, we are, uh, we are in the book of Philemon, and I, I'm excited about this. You know, as we were wrapping up um, our last book, I, uh, Pastor Michael and I were talking, and a couple of weeks ago, in just some of my own personal devotional time, I, I decided to read through Philemon, and I've read through it before. I can't say I've studied it in depth before this, um, and then I came to find out I'm not alone in that. Uh, I think Philemon is kind of forgotten. Like, there's very limited commentaries available on Philemon, and it's kind of like oftentimes overlooked. Um, you won't find a ton of pastors that have done a series on Philemon or gone through it, uh, but the things I did find had such rich content. And for me personally, as I started to read through this short letter from Paul, um, I just was blown away at the, the depth and the richness of this text. Um, and it really is, many scholars have said it is almost like a gospel in miniature. It's, it hits on all these, all these big ideas that Paul is conveying in Acts and Romans and Ephesians and Corinthians and Colossians are kind of all um, in a succinct manner hit on in this short letter that Paul's writing to his friend Philemon. And I just really um, found myself blown away by the fact that I haven't spent more time in this short letter because there's just so much. And so 
it could be taught in one night, but that is just not what we do here. <laughs> and so we're going to do the first seven verses. But what I would like to do, being that it is uh, relatively short, is I'd like to read uh, this letter because it is indeed a letter, and it's probably the most personal letter that you will see in the New Testament from the Apostle Paul. Paul's writing to Philemon, who he has a personal relationship with, and this is about as personal as a letter as you're going to see from Paul to another person that he's writing to. And this is really the way you can think about this text as we study it for the next couple weeks is this is Paul writing from one friend to another. He's writing a letter to a friend, a brother in Christ, and he has some things that he wants to address. And so I'd love to read the text in its entirety, all 25 uh, verses, and then we will uh, tackle the first seven tonight. So if you would stand as we read the word together, we're going to read all of Philemon. Reading from the ESV, it reads like this. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Epipha, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Verse 7. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and me. I am sending him back to you, sending in my very heart. And I would have been glad to keep him here with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be comp by compulsion, uh, but by your own accord. Verse 15. For this purpose is, uh, excuse me, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing even your own self, uh, owing me even your own self, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write this to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, and my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. You can have a seat. Lord, thank you for your word. Tonight, as we have the opportunity, the privilege to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, 
We ask that your Holy Spirit would lead this time. We ask that if there is knowledge, Lord, that we have not yet acquired, that we would grow tonight, that you would be so gracious as to uh, pour that knowledge out, Lord, that we might better navigate this life. Um, we know that your word never returns void, that time spent in devotion to you and in, in fellowship with each other and in, in growing in the faith, Lord, it's never gonna return void. And so tonight we commit this time to you. We ask that your Holy Spirit would lead it and that you would be glorified through it. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I read through this first passage of, if you were Greek, you would say philemon, you would like have this like thick accent. I'm not going to say it like that all night because I, I can't do that. Um, and there's, there's some serious names in here. So we have Onesimus, which you could just say Onesimus. And then we have Philemon and we have Paul. You can get Paul, right? Everybody can get Paul. <laughs> we like Paul's name. Nice and easy. So Paul's writing during one of his many imprisonments. Um, there's a lot of things in this short letter that we just don't have a ton of details on. Um, we're not even entirely sure at what point Paul is writing this, but we do know from his language in the text that he's older now, um, that he's seasoned. Um, we can venture to say that he knows Philemon, who is a well-to-do, um, he's in the Roman Empire, he's wealthy, and he obviously is doing well for himself because he has a house big enough in Colossae to house a church that's meeting there. We don't know the size of the church, but we know this, that Colossians is written right around the same time. It's a safe guess to say that Colossians is written around the exact same time that Paul pins this letter to Philemon. And what we know is that um, it's very possible that Philemon, who is a businessman, um, we would gather, probably made trips uh, in order to uh, take care of the business that he had, may have run into Paul, and we know from the text also that Paul is the reason, uh, has the, been the one that God has used to expose Philemon to the true gospel, and Philemon is in many ways indebted to Paul for showing him the gospel. And so what, what many scholars believe is that it's possible that uh, during a business trip, Philemon is in Ephesus at the same time as Paul. Paul is speaking and uh, speaking the gospel of Jesus. Philemon is there. He hears it, whether he's converted there in the moment or not. We know that over time, him and Paul build a relationship. We know that Epaphras starts a church in Colossae, and Philemon is a leader in that church there in Colossae. And so the church presumably is, is meeting in Philemon's home. And so there's this relationship between Paul and Philemon. They know each other uh, maybe for years now. They've known each other. Uh, Paul has made it clear that he spends much time praying for him, and he has much uh, good to say about Philemon. He has a lot of things to praise him for. So we know that they know each other. Now, the other character, we have three main characters in this letter. We have Paul, we have Philemon, and then we have Onesimus. And Onesimus is a slave to Philemon. And we're going to talk about slavery tonight. We're going to talk about what that means in this Greco-Roman culture, what that looks like. Um, I will tell you now, it is nothing like what you and I think of when we think of slavery in our Western American culture. So we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, but Onesimus, at one point, was a slave for Philemon in his home. They have some sort of falling out. We don't know what that falling out is, but it, you could, there's conjecture. We could say that it's possible that 
Um, Onesimus stole something from Philemon. Um, it's possible that there was some sort of altercation or conflict. And it is not uncommon in this time in history for those who are uh, enslaved to go to a mutual third party and ask for a plea on their behalf if they've done something wrong before their master. So this is not totally uncommon. This happened. There might be a situation where, let's say, um, a, a, a household slave stole something from their master, and they could be punished according to Roman law. Now, Roman law categorized these slaves as property. And your experience as a slave in this Roman culture was vastly different depending on the character of your master. So if your master was somebody who uh, was Christ-like and, and understood that all men are created equal in the image of God, then you had a pretty good life. You could basically compare it to most of our lives right now where we work for someone full-time. Maybe if you work for a smaller business or a smaller company and you actually have a face-to-face -face interaction with your boss on a daily basis, that's, that's kind of how a better slave relationship in this culture may have looked. It was, um, and many times, slaves in this culture actually were highly educated. They may even be educating their master uh, on how to read and write, uh, possibly helping raise the children and teaching them how to read and write. They may be uh, taking care of food. Uh, the, the, the list goes on and on. But what we know is that Onesimus is, something happens between him and Philemon, and he runs away. So he is on the run, and as far as the Roman government is concerned, he is punishable by law for what he's done because he should not have left his master's house. And so Paul even having interaction with Onesimus, if this is what's unfolded, is putting Paul himself at risk. Now, if Paul is in house arrest in Rome, which is where many um, scholars lean, is that at this time, Paul is under house arrest in, in Rome. And he is awaiting a trial. But the trial period could sometimes be one or two years before you're able to stand before those at power and make your plea. And in this case, if this is when Paul is in house arrest in Rome, his plea is that the Christianity is not going to be a threat to the Roman Empire and he's trying to keep peace. And so he is awaiting that trial date. If it is found out that Paul is giving aid to Onesimus, who is a runaway slave, Paul is, is very much jeopardizing his freedom and his future. But for the sake of discipleship and for the sake of the gospel, Paul lays aside his own personal um, interests and he says, I will take Onesimus in. And so what it seems has happened, and again, we, don't, we have to fill in the blanks with some of these things, so take this for what it's worth. But it seems as though Onesimus has come to Paul and said, I know that you know Philemon, I need help, I stole from him, whatever may have happened, and I need you, I need you to help me. And so that's, that's where we are at when we open up this letter. And it, like I said already, it, it's, it's um, pretty, pretty uh, clear that this is written at the same time as the letter to the church in Colossae, the Colossians, and these letters are going to be delivered at the same time, very possibly by Onesimus himself. And so Onesimus is going to go back, and we're going to see this next week, to the man that he has betrayed in some sense or had some sort of falling out with, and he holds his own fate quite literally in his hands. And he delivers the letter of Philemon to Philemon and says, hey man, good to see you again. Uh, I don't know what that's about. I might be in there. I don't know, but you might want to read that. So you can imagine if Paul is in 
Ephesus, he's about a week's journey away. If he's in house arrest in Rome, he's further away. But nonetheless, we know that it's very likely he sends, after he writes this, the letter to the church in Colossae and the letter to Philemon with Onesimus and some others to be delivered. And so it's an interesting situation that Paul finds himself in. Paul has, as he says in the text, Onesimus has become like a son to him. We don't know how long the two have been together now, but we know this, that Onesimus has become a partner in the gospel with Paul. And so the two of them, uh, Onesimus has been bringing aid. So if Paul is on loose house arrest in Rome right now, he can have visitors, uh, people can come into the home that he's in, but Paul himself really can't leave. But he can have people over. He could have been, if he is on loose house arrest in Rome, have been discipling Onesimus for the last couple of months or however long. I'm gonna venture to say that if Paul is equating him to like a son, that it's probably been a decent amount of time that the two of them have been together and Paul has been taking time to pour into him and disciple him. And that is why we even see Paul say that it may have been for this purpose that he is away from you. God may have just had this happen just so that he could interact with me and become a Christian and partner in the gospel with us. And so you can see even in the midst of the chaos that's happening and the the falling out that these two men are having, Paul is saying, look at what God is doing because now this young man has come to me and made his plea and in doing so, I've been able to uh, disciple him and he's come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so we see the grace of God working in three very different men. We have Onesimus, who is As far as the Romans are concerned, the lowest of the low. He's a household slave, and he is um, probably more poor. Uh, He may have, more than likely, probably was born into uh, slavery. We don't know for sure, but there's Onesimus. Then we have the apostle Paul. He is Saul at one point. He's cream of the crop. He has the highest education. He's wealthy. He's successful. And now Saul has become Paul. And he's, and he's years and years into his ministry for the, the sake of the gospel. And he's now writing this letter. And, so we, and then we have a wealthy Roman citizen. Three very different people. And that, that is a beautiful picture that's painted here because their common bond is Jesus. In fact, that's one of the main points of this letter, that Paul is making a a plea to Philemon to say, you no longer see Onesimus as a slave. No, you're going to take him back, and you're going to take him back as a brother in Christ. And Paul makes it clear in different texts in the New Testament that we don't necessarily have time to get into tonight, that the institution of slavery Um, in that men are less equal based on race or ethnicity or skin color. Those things are not of the Lord. In fact, the Old Testament condemns those things. We'll get into that in a moment. But here's what we know. Paul is saying, look, you guys are brothers in Christ. And so no longer will you see him as a servant. Now, the other thing is that Philemon's reputation is possibly also on the line. Because if word gets out, and Onesimus is well known. In fact, he's mentioned in the letter to the Colossian church as well, which is not an accident. I believe that Paul is very strategic in the way that he writes these two letters. Because, see, if the whole church in Colossae Colossae knows what's going on, well, then Philemon has to make a decision knowing that everybody's watching what he'll do next. 
So Paul is not dumb. He is very much writing this letter in a very unique fashion, in a strategic manner, making his plea for Onesimus. And this is also the only letter that Paul doesn't use his normal introduction. Instead of saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, how does he introduce himself? Look at verse one with me. He says, Paul, a what? A prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. Now, he mentions Timothy. Um, obviously, we know Paul and Timothy are extremely close. The last, Paul, uh, the last letter that Paul pens before his, um, um, his um, execution, uh, before he's beheaded in Rome, is 2 Timothy. And, and he talks about how Timothy is also like a son to him, and uh, there's this close-knit bond. But there's really no evidence that Timothy helps write these letters. It may have happened, but we just don't know. But we know this. Paul is making a very clear uh, ask to Philemon. I think there's a beautiful thing about the church as we gather. All of us come from different backgrounds, different social status, uh, different, different regrets and pasts. And the thing that unites you and I tonight, as different as our lives may look and may have looked before we came to faith in Christ, all of those things are irrelevant. The, the ground is level, if you will, at the foot of the cross. Amen. And so whether you have lots of money tonight and you're extremely successful in what you do or you are barely making it by, whatever, by whatever measure you want to measure success, uh, the way that the world measures success, all of those things don't matter. Because the common bond that you and I should have, and I pray do have, is Jesus Christ. That's the thing that unites us. That's what matters. It's, it's not about any other thing. And our culture needs that message right now, don't we? It's not about uh, ethnicity or race or social status or how successful you are or how attractive the world would classify you as. No, the thing that gives you value and where your identity lies, and this is the message that Paul is relaying to his brother in Christ, is you guys have a common bond. It's Jesus. And all the other things that have happened, whatever, and we don't even know if Onesimus shares with Paul exactly what he did. He may have just said, I really messed up, man, and I need your help. Maybe Paul knows every detail of what happened, but it doesn't matter, and that's why it's not even in the text. In fact, in this letter, Paul doesn't even need to mention the resurrection and the, de and the, uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus because he is asking two men who are now Christians to act like Christians. Fascinating stuff. Wouldn't it be great if more Christians act like Christians? It's, it's really deep stuff. But the church is dying in many ways, and we, we talked about this on Tuesday morning. The church will never die because she's the bride of Christ. But I will tell you, there are so many dead, quote-unquote, churches with a bunch of dead Christians, quote-unquote, Christians, filling pews, warming seats, filling the number charts at churches. And what, what does that have? I heard a friend uh, say the other day that the number of people that attend your church, um, it was actually a YouTube video, and it was a guy talking about um, just the modern church and some of the things that have a tendency to plague our modern church and the way we even approach what success in the church looks like. 
And he said, the number of people that sit in your services on a Sunday has little to no bearing on how successful your ministry is. And even as we look at the text tonight, Philemon is praised over and over again by the Apostle Paul for refreshing the saints, for the love that he's poured out, for his faithfulness to the gospel. And it's very possible that this is a church of maybe 15 people. This is a small startup in Colossae. And unfortunately for us in our American culture, we have been told bigger is always better. And that is the way that so many of us live our lives with this consumer mentality that we always need the next thing and that we always need more stuff. I like stuff, but I can't live for stuff. I can't live for success. Those things can't be what I live for. No, success for the church is measured by what we've already addressed tonight, which is that we have a common bond in Jesus Christ and that the message of the gospel goes out to the saints. And as we see in the text, the saints are refreshed. If you come here and you are just given a motivational talk, and I tell you that you're good and you're good and you're good, it's been said many times that many people sitting in church are told, you're okay and I'm okay, and the only thing they know for sure is that they're not okay. There's something missing in their life. And the the praise comes to Philemon from the Apostle Paul himself because he says, you are refreshing the saints. He says in verse four, I thank God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. We could learn some lessons from how the Apostle Paul measures a godly life and success. The church in Colossae wasn't the best music ministry, putting out one or two good albums a year. They didn't have the coolest set designs. I do our set designs. I like being creative. I like pouring out my creative abilities in those things. But that, that's not how we measure our success. I, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people in the church who are going from church to church to church looking for the thing that fits and works for them best. But what they need and what they really need and what they don't realize they need maybe in the depths of their soul is they need the truth of the gospel. And that is why the Apostle Paul says that it brings joy to his heart when he prays for the church in Colossae for men like Philemon because they are equipping the saints. I suppose that maybe this is just a fundamental issue with the modern Christian church. We have celebrated, maybe to a fault, individuality. Now, the Bible makes it clear that you and I are all created unique. In fact, Paul himself writes in the New Testament that all of us have unique roles, but we're a part of the same body. But Paul's point in writing that is not that when we gather here, we celebrate you and me. Quite frankly, if we were here to celebrate me, I think the turnout would be far worse tonight because there's not much to celebrate because at the end of the day, you and I are both broken people who need a savior. And what has happened in the church is that we have praised people and put people on pedestals. 
And I will tell you, it is one person falling after the next. And Reach Records, which is a popular Christian uh, uh, label, many popular Christian rappers on this label. One of them is Gavi. He is uh, a really well-known DJ. In fact, most of Lecrae and Andy Minio and Words Played, if you listen to any Christian hip-hop, um, all of these guys, a lot of their beats are made by Gavi. And the song, he has, a lot of DJs have like their thing, right? And Gavi's thing is like the beginning of every song, it's like, Gavi, get him. You know, and then the song starts. It's pretty cool. But Gavi, who's a professing Christian, has just been removed on Monday from Reach Records for sending inappropriate, unsolicited photos to women who are not his wife. And I watch one person after the next who is in, I, and I told my wife as, we, as she told me, she sent me the article and told me what happened and we both like his music and I thought, another person has fallen. And I said to her the other night, I said, I don't understand how these men in such great positions think that they can get away with things like this. And then I take a step back and I realize that every single one of us is, is tempted in these areas and susceptible to falling. And so each one of us must be on guard. And I, I often wonder, and I bring that up because I wonder, I wonder how many Christians who have made it to the top of this world's measure of success are not actually getting equipped. And so sin begins to creep into the back door of their life. I wonder if we would feed our soul more and our flesh less, how much it would impact our church culture. And so fundamentally, the Christian church is not about celebrating individuals. When we gather, we gather for the sake of glorifying God and being equipped as saints so that we can go out into a world with the message of hope. And yes, fellowship and the different uh, personalities that God has given each one of us are beautiful things that can be celebrated and are an aspect of what we do, but they cannot be everything. And so the simple gospel does away with all the differences that we bring into this room. And I put in my notes, we gather for Christ, to know Christ, and to be in Christ. That's the purpose. I think that Paul understood this. And even as he introduces himself, he introduces himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. You know, Paul could have started off this letter to Philemon and reminded him of all of his accomplishments and all the things that he's done and who he is and the authority that he has as an apostle of Jesus, but he doesn't do that. You know why? Because Paul understands humility. The Bible talks about humility a lot in that it talks about pride a lot. Just a few examples. You don't need to remind people of your accomplishments or how successful you've been. It's not Christ-like. And all of us are tempted to do that because of our own insecurities and the things that we struggle with and our own self-doubt. We love to, to walk into a room and remind people how good we are. Brian Regan, who's a uh, comedian, he has a, a sketch called The Me Monster. <laughs> and he tells the story of being at a dinner party and there's always that one guy. 
yeah, well, you know, I'm over here and I'm uh, raising the global network and we're raising five million this year. Me, 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 me. You know, and he starts like losing his mind. And Brian Regan said, I wish I could just have like one really big accomplishment that just always tops everybody else. He said, I just wish I could say I walked on the moon. You know, let the guy go on and on and on about all his accomplishments and everything he's got going on and just sit there quietly. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And then when he finally is quiet, just say, I walked on the moon. <laughs> Floor's yours, moonwalker, you know? But scripture, Brian Regan's great, but he's not, I don't know if it's divine inspiration. But let's look at some scripture about pride. Proverbs 16.8 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. How many times have you seen this? Oh, I, these are the most satisfying videos for me on YouTube. Oh, it's like the, the, they, they always call them instant karma. I call them instant Holy Spirit. Bam, you know, just like conviction. But it's, it's so great when the cocky guy gets humbled in front of everybody. Isn't that just so satisfying? It's probably sinful that I'm like, I enjoy it maybe too much. But, you know, you just see the guy and he's going, uh, you know, on and on. And a lot of times, I, I, I used to play a lot more pickup basketball until somebody broke my nose by headbutting me and then didn't apologize. And I decided it probably wasn't for me. Um, but we used to play pickup basketball. And the egos in pickup basketball are something else, man. Like, we are playing at a park. There's five-year-olds playing soccer right there, man. Like, this is not that serious. The slow-pitch softball team for the church that we've had uh, from time to time, I'm like, we are playing Division Three softball in Corona, California. Like, no one cares about this. And the egos that happen on that field are unbelievable. And sometimes, you know, I, we played a team one time, and, and it was it was we were giving them a rough time. You know, the score was climbing on our end and not moving on theirs. And their first baseman was just like going on and on. And it was, and you always see this, it was everybody else's fault on the team, right? Like, and at one point he literally said loud enough for everybody to hear, I can't win this game alone. <laughs> and then ball after ball, he's playing first base, tipping off his glove, not making the play. And I was like, yeah, you're darn right you can't win this game alone, buddy. I don't think you can do it with your whole team. But it's so satisfying when you see somebody humble. <laughs> it's very humiliating uh, and humbling when it happens to you, though, isn't it? How many times have you started saying something and then immediately are humbled and you just feel so foolish? Galatians 6.3, Paul writing to the church of Galatia says, for if anyone thinks he is something, here's a straightforward note, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. There's another time where in the New Testament it says, brothers, we ought not to think too highly of ourselves. <laughs> you know, just Paul is saying in that passage in Galatians, if anyone thinks he is something when he is in fact nothing, he's fooling himself. <laughs> Pretty straightforward. Another proverb, Proverbs 26, 12 says, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for that man. Are you wise in your own eyes? Do you think you got it all together? Sometimes I really do think I've got it all together. And then the Holy Spirit's like, <laughs> that's gonna be my analogy tonight. Holy Spirit slap. And sometimes we need that. And pride most certainly does come before the fall. In short, do away with pride. It's not pleasing to God. And we could learn a lot of little lessons from the way that Paul even addresses this letter. I also suppose, as I said earlier, it is a strategic introduction because uh, we will soon see Paul ask Philemon to lay aside his rights uh, to carry out due punishment to Onesimus. 
And so I'm, I, I'm sure there is some forward thinking and inspiration from the Holy Spirit here in the way that this letter opens. But I know this. What Paul is asking of Philemon is, is a high calling. It's a big deal. He's not only asking him to forgive, he's asking him to take in Philemon as one of his own, as a family member. And so we know that Paul has a fair amount of authority in this situation, not only being an apostle, but the NLT reads this way, uh, I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it, and I won't mention that you owe me your very soul. And so there's clear indication that uh, in some way Philemon, like I have said already, has become a Christian because of Paul's work, possibly one of his missionary journeys. There's other people mentioned in this text. It's possible that uh, Apipha is uh, Philemon's wife. We don't know. That's just conjecture. Um, and there's other people mentioned, but the, like I said, the three main characters are, in fact, Philemon, Onesimus, and Paul. And so let's look at verse two. Uh, verse three. He says, grace, and, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse four. I thank my God, always, when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus Christ and for all the saints. I thank God when I remember you. The first thing that strikes me is I'm reminded that Paul and so many godly men throughout Scripture are men of prayer. Is prayer a priority in your life? I, I know that for me, there have been uh, seasons in my life where I feel like I always am, am faithful to pray to the Lord and spend that time. And then I have seasons like having a new baby where it's just utter chaos. And then you look at her and you guys are all like, oh, what do you mean utter chaos? I'm like, all right, at 2 a.m., you're gonna come to my house and you're gonna come in my room and you're gonna hear sounds that I didn't know babies could make, okay? like screaming sounds that high frequencies, that ears are bleeding, windows are splitting. <laughs> and, you know, there are seasons and maybe we get busy in our life or um, we become overwhelmed by uh, different circumstances or maybe we suffer loss. Uh, maybe we go through a, a difficult season, whatever it may be. And the tendency and the propensity and the temptation is that maybe we move away from the Lord. Maybe we distance ourselves from the Lord. But the exact opposite is encouraged in Scripture and even commanded that we would make all our prayers and, and our needs known before the Lord. I asked you, is prayer something that you make a priority in your life? But I think a, a, a better question would be, do you understand how necessary prayer is for your life as a Christian? I believe that when you build healthy habits with prayer, it becomes almost like breathing. It's something that you stop thinking about as a task. It's just something that you do naturally. And when you don't do it, it begins to cripple you. If prayer is not like that for you, you know how you can fix that? Start praying. Start praying more. And I think maybe 
maybe some of us, we think of prayer and we think of, uh, you know, the sweet old lady that has her prayer closet in her home. And you're like, I have six kids. I go to work at 6 a.m. I got to pick them up from school. I got to make their lunches, whatever your schedule looks like. And you're like, I don't have time for a prayer closet. I, my favorite place to pray is in my car. And sometimes driving in Southern California, you better be praying while you're driving your car or you're going to be a non-Christian on the freeway, okay? Uh, so, <laughs> but I actually, as much as uh, I have such passion and a love for music, and I do li- listen to music fairly often in my car, but a lot of times in the morning, I don't, and my wife pointed this out when we started dating. She said, you know, there's a lot of times, because I've had a habit of just using that time to pray. Uh, when we first started dating, she pointed out, like, why do you never turn on music in the car? And, and I don't never turn it on, but more often than not, I'll end up just driving in silence. And I, I find that that's a time that can be redeemed for good. Now, it's not to say that if you listen to music while you're driving, you're wasting your time. Unless, of course, the music you're listening to is not honoring to the Lord at all. Then that is another thing. And we can talk about that another time. But I would encourage you to find time in your day and make it a routine and a habit to seek the Lord in prayer. And I heard a pastor say many years ago that as he preaches, Jesus is as real to him in the room as the people sitting in the seats. And he approaches his sermons as if Jesus Christ is sitting in the front row listening to every word. And I will tell you, uh, he is. He hears every word. In fact, the scripture says that we will give an account for every careless word that we've said. One of the most terrifying verses in all of scripture. For every careless word. But I wonder, and I believe that if we spent more time in prayer and believed in the power of prayer, we, we like to say that we believe in the power of prayer, but if we believe in the power of prayer, then we will pray. I have uh, many young men that I have coffee with and, and we talk, and often something that I always go back to with them is, if you want to make this thing right in your life and you really want a relationship with Christ, do you really want to honor him in this area in your life, you will do it. Don't tell me I want to honor God and then not honor God. Make the change. If you feel that your prayer life is lacking, make a change. Start praying. Stop scrolling through Facebook for endless hours and start praying instead. I have timers on all my social media now because I find that I will waste too much time. And sometimes you can, you can ignore the timer, sure, but at least it's a reminder like, wow, I've already been on my phone for 30 minutes today. How much time have I prayed today? I wonder if the Christian church spent as much time, half the time, a quarter of the time that they spend on social media in prayer instead, how vastly different the church would look. And the Apostle Paul understands the power of prayer. And he says in verse four, I thank God always when I remember you in my prayers. Why does he thank the Lord? Well, he thanks the Lord because he's refre- Philemon is refreshing the saints. Do you refresh people? I just wonder. Paul is, is applauding and, and praising Philemon and encouraging him and saying, you are refreshing the saints. You are, you are uplifting people. You're equipping them with the gospel. And one of the, the first thing that he says is because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have not only towards the Lord, but towards those whom you are shepherding and leading. When, when you walk into a room, do people, uh, for self-application purposes, 
do you, do you think that people feel like they're gonna be encouraged by you? Or do you think that when you walk into a room, people are gonna expect to be discouraged? If you are leaving behind a legacy around, with the people around you in your life that you are not an encourager, that's not a good legacy. Now, I'm not saying that there's never a time to speak a, a, a word of truth and to exhort and to even um, rebuke, but you should be known just because, simply because you are a Christian. Some of you will say, well, that's not my personality. Okay, I don't care that it's not your personality. You are a new creation in Christ, friend, and so you are called to be an encourager. I hear that excuse all the time, and it's usually justification for bad behavior in the life of a Christian. Well, it's not my personality. I don't fellowship with anyone because I'm an introvert. Okay? Can you show me that scripture where it says, uh, don't forsake the meeting and gathering together and the breaking of bread unless you are introvert? <laughs> no. We need to see the value in the gathering together of the saints, and that's something that's been very much challenged in our culture. And Paul says, I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Verse six, and I pray that the sharing, or you could say the partnership, as some translations will say, of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in, uh, that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, verse six has been debated um, many times as to what Paul is exactly saying here to Philemon. I won't bore you with all the different perspectives on what it means. Um, I've heard some sermons in the last few days that try to make a case for personal evangelism from this verse. I suppose if you took verse six out of its context, it's a great evangelism verse, but in its proper context, which is how we study the Bible properly, it's not really about personal evangelism. No, no, no. What Paul is saying here is he's talking about fellowship, or a good word is partnership, because see what happens is in our Western culture, we read that word sharing and we think evangelism. So he says, and I pray that the sharing, but a better word would be, I pray that the partnership of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing. Okay, so Paul uses the word here uh, for partnership in the Greek is koinonia. You guys know the word koinonia because you're about to go eat stuff I can't eat right now because of the stupid diet plan I'm doing like cake and cookies, and we have our koinonia time. We have our time of fellowship, and uh, you could say partnership as we go out after this service, and you guys are gonna have a time where you get to just commune with each other. If you always make a habit of skipping that time, I'd encourage you, if you can, I know if you gotta get up early for work, I get it, but take a few moments and get to know somebody you don't know. That's why we do that time, and that is the word that Paul uses in the Greek, koinonia, and he says, look, I... I believe that the sharing or the, the fellowship, the koinonia of your faith is refreshing the saints. And so it's not so much about sharing our faith in an evangelistic you know, terminology as much as it is about fellowship within the body of Jesus. And again, that is what Paul is getting at is that he's building up to the, the ask for Onesimus to be forgiven. He's strategically working to that point. So he's praising Philemon for the things that he's done well, and he's saying, you've been refreshing the saints, you have been faithful to the Lord, you've poured out love to people, thank you. I'm always encouraged when I think about you. And he's, and he's talking about this idea of oneness in Christ, 
and fellowship in the name of Jesus because in a moment he's going to ask Philemon to take a huge step of faith and forgive Onesimus for what has happened and take him in not just back as a house slave but as a brother in the Lord. But that's next week's sermon. And so Paul makes it clear. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, In Christ, Paul writing to the church in Corinth, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That is a huge idea of our text tonight, is this idea that Philemon and Onesimus would be reconciled to each other in spite of what has happened. Now, something that I want to address for the few minutes that we have left. I have heard it asked so many times, not only in reference to Philemon, but in other biblical passages. And it is a fair question that I think is worth spending some time on for a moment tonight. Why didn't Paul outrightly um, condemn slavery? I've heard that question asked over and over again. One of the biggest struggles that I, I have had with people who are opposed to the things of the Bible, usually, especially in our current time in our culture, comes back to this idea of slavery. A proper understanding of what is happening is so key. Slavery is just a fact of life in this culture. This is... Any major society at this time in history is built on slavery. But when you and I think of slavery, what do we think of? We think of the transatlantic slavery, that, that things that took place, and things that slaves that were brought from Africa into the States that were uh, given no rights, were thought less of, and we're thinking of 18th and 19th century occurrences and people who thought that because somebody had darker skin than them, they were less valuable. And I will tell you right now, out of the gate, as we open up this subject tonight, that any man throughout history who has tried to make a case that a black person has less value than them because of the color of their skin is a fool. And if they try to make the case from the Bible, that is blasphemous, and it is an abomination before the Lord. The Old Testament clearly condemns that type of slavery. That is not the slavery that we are seeing in this text nor is it the slavery that God gives regulation for in the Old Testament. Onesimus is more than likely born into this uh, the form of slavery. In many cases, to be a slave was like a job that many of us have today. I said this earlier. In some cases, it was indeed horrible because the master may have mistreated his slaves, but this was frowned upon by many. And, it, and if it was found out that there was mistreatment, a lot of times action would be taken from a legal standpoint. But the Roman government, non-Christian authority, classified slaves as property. But this situation is slavery where it is a type of employment almost. Um, in many ways, it is a choice. In fact, the Roman Empire, it's possible that 20 to 30% of the people in the Roman Empire at this time are a slave of some form. And so what this means is, first, to be clear, the Old Testament clearly condemns the slavery that happened in the early America that we know. 
I will give you a few verses, but I'm gonna give you a few key points because I think this is knowledgeable things to take when, when, you, when you get this opposition from people. Well, why doesn't the Bible condemn slavery? In fact, what you will hear oftentimes is the Bible condones slavery. That's what you're gonna hear. You're gonna hear people say, well, the, the Old Testament promotes slavery and they're gonna go to verses in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and they're gonna take them out of context and they're gonna say, you see, you see, and you need to be equipped to answer that. And so I think it's worth our time for a moment. Number one, God is not the author of slavery, but people are sinners, and it happens. So God gives regulations and instruction in the Old Testament on proper protocol for slavery. In many ways, slavery is designed in this culture, in the Greco-Roman world, to help the poor. You say, help the poor? How could slavery help the poor? If you weren't able to get a job, if you had a debt to pay, you could quite literally sell yourself to a master and say, I will work for you for this amount of years to pay off this debt so that I can be a free man. So in many cases, people ended up in a slavery situation based on a choice. Maybe they had a debt to pay or they needed employment and they were desperate for a job, so they, they do that in order to make wages. Um, in Hebrew culture, slavery was oftentimes volitional, as I'm saying. That is, people could choose to hire themselves out to pay off a debt or work for basic needs that they needed met, um, like putting food on the table for their family and stuff. And um, their master would be able to provide those things that they may not be able to provide for themselves. Uh, number four, kidnapping and forcing someone into slavery is explicitly outlawed in the Old Testament. Over and over again. Deuteronomy 24-7 says, if someone is caught kidnapping a fellow Israelite and treating or selling them as a slave, the kidnapper must die. That's a serious offense. You must purge the evil from among you. Exodus 21-16 says, anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, whether the victim has been sold or still in the kidnapper's possession. Proverbs 22-16 says, one who oppresses the poor to increase his wealth and one who gives gifts to the rich becomes, um, both become, uh, come to poverty. Another thing, number five, slavery was limited in years in this culture. It was a total of six years. Now, we know this idea from the idea of being a bond servant. What that would look like is that you would serve in a household for six years. You'd pay off your debt or whatever the agreement was. And in many cases, if the master and the slave had a good relationship, they would become a bond slave or a bond servant, which is that they would become a servant by choice. They would commit themselves to stay with that person for the rest of their life. And a lot of times they would have land and property. They would have a living quarters with the master's family. They would have their own kids and family. And it was like they became family. Number six, Leviticus 25 makes it clear that slaves were to be treated as employees and after their time was completed, they were to be released. Number seven, slaves, according to God's law, also had equal rights and could own property and could purchase their freedom. The Bible makes it clear that no man owned another man and that each one was created equal in God's image. Slavery was not based on race. That is a key Thing to remember is that the slavery that you are seeing now there were times when this happened like the Jewish people under the persecution of Egypt under Pharaoh but the slavery that God is giving regulation for in the Old Testament is not based on skin color that ideology largely is uh, comes to the surface in the 18th and 19th century and that's the slavery that you and I often associate when we hear the word slavery 
That is not what the Bible is talking about. That's not what Paul and is talking about, and that's not what's happening with Philemon and Onesimus. So I just think that it's valuable that we address that because it's going to come up. And so it needs to be, we need to be educated on what's happening here. You can get more information about this. There's so many resources online for what is happening in, old, in the Old Testament laws. Uh, but just know this. Uh, that it, the slavery that you and I think of when we think about our education, maybe in a public school system in this culture, is not the same thing. Everybody good? Okay, cool. I just think it's worth so that we can help answer people and guide them when they have struggles with that in, in looking at Christianity and the Bible. Our last verse for tonight, because I know we're at our time. Verse 7. He says, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. And this is really where we land tonight. Paul has such a joy as he writes to Philemon because Philemon is being a good shepherd. He's being a discipler and he's being faithful to the things of God. A couple things that I want to ask you tonight. Are you discipling anybody in your life? Is there somebody younger than you that you can see and say, I'm going to seek out that person and I'm going to, I'm going to, I want to help them. And maybe they can learn from mistakes that I've made or they can, they can glean from wisdom that I've gathered over the years of my life. And are you being discipled by someone else? These are key components to your life as a Christian. As I said earlier, it's very possible if Paul's on house arrest, as Onesimus shows up and makes his plea that he would help him with his situation with Philemon, that Paul is putting himself in danger and possibly jeopardizing his future by doing this. Because to give aid to a runaway slave is a crime under the Roman government. But Paul says, it's worth it because I'm called to be a discipler. And so I, I think it's an important thing that for us as Christians tonight, we are seeking to be someone who refreshes the saints. Amen? Amen. Somebody who is, is interested in the things of God and desires to see people discipled and grow in their faith and their knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's the legacy that I want to leave behind. Somebody that refreshed people and was an encourager. And you know, the people in your life that are like that are always quite literally refreshing, aren't they? Because it's rare. It is rare to find someone who is good at encouraging. And so if you take nothing else away from this first uh, section of Philemon tonight, I would ask you as the title of our message, are you refreshing the saints? You don't have to be a pastor or a church leader or on staff at a church or leading a Bible study per se to be a refresher. It's just part of the call on your life as a Christian to be someone who refreshes the people of God. And so I'll leave you with this. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs 
with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's Colossians 3.16. The same, the letter that Paul is probably writing at about the same time that he's writing Philemon. And, you know, there are key components that he's writing to the church as he encourages them to be people who are equipped. He says, let the word of God dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. And it's not a coincidence that then Paul says, and I know I'm the worship leader, but then Paul says, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. Those are key components. And so we now have the opportunity to sing a song together. And I will just say this. Some of you, the temptation every week is as soon as the pastor prays, you're like, I'm out. I believe that that is wrong. Why? Because I think the Bible teaches that that part of the service is valuable. Look, if it wasn't valuable, I would not work here. And the first 30 minutes of our service would be something else. But we believe as a church that there's value in that corporate time of singing together. And so as we sing this last song, stick around and then stick around for the fellowship. We have very practical application tonight because everything that we just read about is gonna happen right now. So would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, the fact that we can just grow so much as we spend time in the text, as we look at the lessons that there are godly men like Paul who you've used to pave the way for the kingdom. And Lord, we just thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that tonight um, we can be refreshed as we spend time in your presence, as, as we fellowship together, as we open up your word and we let the word of God dwell in our hearts richly, as we sing songs together, God, we can be refreshed and then we can go out and as we are being poured into, we can then pour out into others and disciple. And such a key component of the encouragement that Paul gives to Philemon is that he is refreshing your church. And so I pray that uh, we would make it a priority to be disciples and to be pouring into each other as the body of Christ, encouraging each other and admonishing each other. And so tonight, Lord, as we give you the, the remainder of our time, we pray that you bless it. We thank you, God, and we look forward to what you will do this weekend. May we be people of prayer, even over the services that will happen this weekend and the remainder of this week. In Jesus' mighty and precious name, amen.